If you would, remain standing and take out your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. One of the ushers will get you one. Today's reading is going to come from the book of Acts, chapter 18. And we'll be covering verses 18 through 28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he had powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Sends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's go before the Lord that we'll have ears to hear his word this morning. Lord God, we ask again, I'm Holy Spirit, for your guidance and your blessing. Give us ears to hear, we pray, and grant me the ability to communicate your truth by the power of your spirit this morning. Bless your people, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Bring to faith those who don't yet believe. For Christ's sake, amen. Uh, we return um, to our exposition, the book of Acts, here in chapter 18, uh, which shows us um, a man consumed with gospel ministry. Um, since the latter part of chapter 15, um, in this Paul's um, second missionary journey, we've seen several features of this man absorbed in gospel ministry. It's estimated that from the years 49 to 52 AD, the Apostle Paul traveled 2,000 miles by foot and 1,000 miles by boat. His goal? To preach the gospel. To declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And to serve and strengthen those in Christ with the gospel. I said last time, which was about three weeks ago, so we took a little break for Advent. I said then that, that we as readers of the book of Acts are often inclined to see the Apostle Paul's ministry and the expanse of the early church as being carried out by way of the supernatural, the extraordinary. While, you know, we live and we serve and we carry out the Lord's great commission in an everyday, um, ordinary um, kind of way. 
We can get so focused on the facts of the book of Acts and what is happening that we fail to realize how God is doing that which is happening. And that is he's working through ordinary people who are doing ordinary ministry for an extraordinary savior. Make no mistake, my friends, he's carrying out the same work today through you and through me. And that is God's people putting their hand to the plow, walking by faith as God the Holy Spirit leads them. We've seen that throughout these 18 chapters thus far, carrying out God's preordained plan by way of, word of the day, providence. Providence. Now, many of you know the Rudgers, members of this church. John, who just read the text, his wife, Dawn, have a daughter named Providence. Christmas Eve, after the Christmas Eve service, I came out, of, out from the foyer there, and I, I, I hang a right down the hall leading to the, to the back doors, and there was Dawn chasing down Providence. You'll see that any given Sunday, actually. <laughs> And as I turned the corner, Dawn, she's, she's a long time. I've known Dawn for a long time. Long. And she said, Providence, stop. <laughs> to which I said, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> Providence is God carrying out his preordained plan in time and on time. Which was a reference to the Christmas Eve message. Um, we had a good laugh and nevertheless, although that little providence may not be stopped, God's providence certainly will not be stopped. Amen? From our reading this morning, Isaiah 46, verse 9, I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, I will accomplish all my good pleasure, I have planned it, surely I will do it. Do you believe that? Look, God knows the future, beloved, not because he looks down the corridors of time to see that which will happen, merely foreseeing it, but rather he foreknows it because he has preordained it. That's what foreknow means. So today, beloved, is really part two. Um, it's a part two kind of message. And what I want us to see this morning um, throughout this text is more of God's providential handiwork as his kingdom continues to grow through gospel ministry being carried out by very ordinary people. This is part two of that message from about three weeks ago. And our responsibility is not only to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's also to strengthen our brother, brothers and sisters in the gospel, to strengthen them with the truth of God. That's ministry. It's demonstrated here in showing us how to help our brothers and sisters to, to grow strong in his grace. And we need abundant grace. Amen? I need abundant grace. So we strengthen the hand of our brothers and sisters by way of reminding them of the promises of God, the promises of his 
word. So this is for you to, to know how to use your gifts, how to use your resources, the resources God has given you for the sake of his kingdom, extending his kingdom as long as you have breath or until he returns. So here we are, Luke, the author, the narrator, the narrator here, he, he is moving us to the end of Paul's second missionary journey and into the beginning of his third missionary journey, which commences in verse 22. His third missionary journey begins, it's hard to see, but it begins actually in verses 22 and 23 with a brief interlude that describes for us the man by the name of Apollos. Amen? So that's where we're going. First, by way of review, look at verse 1. Back in verse 1, we read, After these things, he, that is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. Okay, that is after Paul's confrontation with the intellectual elite of Athens. Athens, the intellectual capital of the ancient world. He departs there and he moves on to Corinth, the vanity fair of the ancient world. A city renowned for many things, not the least of which was its immorality. From Athens into Corinth, Paul arrives in Corinth alone. By himself, rarely do we ever find the Apostle Paul on his own. Paul was at his best when he had those alongside of him in whom he could trust. Those who were like-minded, he was at his best. Aren't we all? We have like-minded people alongside of us. So here Paul goes from place to place and we see one habit of the brother is that he always aligns himself with others for the sake of team ministry. There are no lone ranger Christians. We are the body of Christ. Now, um, early on in Corinth, Paul had to earn an income in order to support himself. So not only would he preach regularly, he also would earn income by the trade that he learned as a young man, and that trade was tent making. He was a tent maker. He was a leather worker. And by the providential handiwork of God, he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, who are tent makers. There we see the providence of God. We see that back in verse 3. Now, one of the features of God's providence is that he brings people across your path who become key players in ministry as well as key players in your life if you allow them in. If you allow them in. In other words... Do not isolate yourself, Christian brother or sister. Do not isolate yourself. You need one another. Now, in verse 5, once Silas and Timothy arrive, they bring financial support. We know that from other portions of Scripture, that they brought Paul financial support from Macedonia. So there again, we see the providential hand of God working through ordinary people in order to support his apostle. So then he's able to preach freely without being bound to, to having to, to make tents. He goes in and preaches in the synagogue, in the local synagogue in Corinth, which was his routine. And here he's opposed and he's banned. 
And he responds, notice, to their resistance and blasphemy, verse 6. Okay, I'm just working our way back down to verse 18. In verse 6, he's banned there. And according to their resistance and blasphemy, notice, Paul does something that Jews typically did to Gentiles. Shake off their cloaks. Shake off the filth. Of, of Gentiles. And Paul here takes off his cloak, he shakes it in their face, and he says to them, notice, your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. That's Ezekiel 18 language. God referred to his prophets as watchmen. And a watchman on the wall would stand and be on the lookout. You see the enemy approaching, and you, you sound the alarm, you blow the horn. If the people ignore the warning... Their blood is on their heads. Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to these Jews in this local synagogue, and he points out how Jesus from the Old Testament is the fulfillment of who Messiah is and what Messiah would do. And they, and they reject him and they blaspheme. And he says, your blood is on your own heads. I'm clean. I've preached to you the truth. Now, we also know that while Paul was in Corinth, he was deeply troubled. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3 that I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. The Apostle Paul, in fear and trembling, and the Lord, if you were with us, remember, he, he, he reminded Paul, I am with you. The Lord was with him because the Lord loved him. And the Lord is doing a work through him. And be sure that you know, Christian, the Lord loves you. There's nothing you can do to change that. Because in Christ, he, he loves you. And he is also working through you. So be sure to know he is therefore always with you. Whether you feel like he's there or not. Was the Lord with Paul when he was beaten with rods? By the Jews? Yeah. Was the Lord with him when he was falsely accused and falsely arrested and thrown into a prison in Philippi? Was the Lord with him? Yes. He was as with him when he was falsely accused and arrested as he was when he re released him miraculously from that prison. And he's with you. Whether you feel it or not. That's why we must bolster one another's faith in the truth. This is your ministry. You know, ultimately, divine providence reminds us that there is a God in heaven who not only knows our sins and our weaknesses, and indeed he does, but he also knows and cares about all your joys, tears, aches, and fears. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul in a night by a vision, do not, look, okay, read this. Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. See, he says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking my truth. Why? Because he was afraid. And he was, a, he was tempted to stop speaking. As I said last time, you know, getting beat up for preaching never got to be fun for Paul. He's an ordinary man. He's an apostle. He serves an extraordinary savior. And so do you. Verse 10, for I am with you. 
And no man, no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city, he says to the Apostle Paul. Uh, now, I have many people in the city does not mean that they were already saved. Doesn't mean he has a bunch of Christians walking around in Corinth. God doesn't save anyone before they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the message of the Christ. That is why Romans 10 says, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they believe if they do not hear? And oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the, the gospel, the good news. So I have many people in this city who are mine has to do with the glorious doctrine of sovereign election and predestination that before the foundation of the world, God determined who he would save, which is to say God knows his people before his people know him. Aren't you glad about that? God knew you. God has his hand on you. He had his hand on you when you were running as a rebel. And at a particular time when the great shepherd called and his call was effectual. You heard, you heard the general call before. You didn't respond. You had no ability to respond. But on that day, the call was effectual and you came and you bowed down. My sheep, Jesus said, here, I am the great shepherd, Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice. What do they do? They come. Come unto me, he says. They hear his voice. He gives them eternal life, Jesus said in John chapter 10. Therefore, Paul is to remain there and preach and not to be afraid. Because according to God's will, those that are his in the city do not yet know they're his. And in time and on time, they will come to saving faith through the preaching of Paul. So he says, do not be afraid. I'm with you. No one will lay a hand on you. There are people in the city, they are mine. And here he is. And notice verse 11, and he settled there for a year and six months. For a year and a half, he remained on the promises of God. Fear not, I am with you, no one will touch you. And he taught the word of God among them, verse 11. And then during those 18 months, um, Jewish opposition once again erupts, bringing Paul to stand before the tribunal. He has to stand before the Bema seat of Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, verse 12. There he is. Now, understand this, that, that Judaism was an authorized religion under the Roman Empire. And what these Jews are accusing Paul of is teaching something that was un-Jewish. And by way of God's providence, he has a pagan, Gallio, the proconsul of this region. And according to God's providence through this pagan, he says, this is not a matter for the Roman court. This is your own in-house debate. So Paul is free, and God's promises to protect Paul are carried out according to God's providence. And notice, the Jews at that point seized one Sosthenes, the ruler of the local synagogue, and they beat him and not Paul, verse 17. God faithful? He never promised he wouldn't have, you know, Sosthenes beaten, but he promised Paul. <laughs> right? You know, I came close to taking a beating for preaching the gospel once. 
I've never had to take a beating for the gospel. I would, by the grace of God, I would. But Paul, by the grace of God, was released from beatings very few times. God promised he wouldn't be touched here. He wasn't touched by the providence of God. So Luke's next comment, here we enter into verse 18. Luke's next comment here is a logical one, verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren, put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila in Sancria. He had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. So before entering um, Ephesus, he stops off at uh, the Sancria cut and clip. He gets a haircut. <laughs> oh, my hair dressers out there <laughs> and notice he's under a vow this this probably have, has to do with a Nazarite vow um, described in numbers chapter 6 there were uh, three things involved with the Nazarite vow um, during the vow um, one would refrain from wine and, and or strong drink or any any anything having to do with grapes actually um, not to come into contact with a dead body during that time of the vow, and you would refrain from cutting your hair until the vow was fulfilled. And that's the clue that this is a Nazarite vow. Now, you might make a Nazarite vow as a way of thanksgiving for some um, extraordinary deliverance. In here, um, Paul, um, according to God's providence, during those 18 months, as God promised, was not touched. He protected him throughout so here's Paul um, under this, this vow. Um, he's not abandoning um, grace for law, by the way. This is a voluntary matter. This is of personal devotion. Paul was free to perform this vow or not to perform this vow. Okay? So if that's indeed what it was, it was voluntary. So here then in verses 19 to 21... Um, he lands in Ephesus, and notice how the Jews respond there. Now, remember, Paul will go in first when he arrives someplace, and he'll preach in the local synagogue that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Messiah, preaching from, of course, the Old Testament. When he arrives here, the Jews' response this time is that they don't try to kill him. Isn't that amazing? They don't try to kill him, as has happened before. They asked him actually to stay longer. After reasoning with them through the scriptures, by way of the scriptures, they say, please stay. He declines, don't know why, but he moves on and he leaves there Priscilla and Aquila. We'll see them in just a little bit. Now, verse 22, Paul moves on and, and although Jerusalem is not mentioned by name here, um, it is implied. Um, the verbs there notice go up and go down, typically designate travel um, to and from Jerusalem. Whether you're coming from the north, south, east, or west, when you enter Jerusalem, you're always ascending up. And then when you leave, you depart, you go down. Even if you're heading north, you're going down. So it's implied here, and this is where uh, he most likely would have completed his vow. You would actually take the hair, the clippings of your hair, and you'd burn them in Jerusalem. So um, that is perhaps um, why he's there. And verses 22 and 23 mark the beginning then um, of Paul's third missionary journey. Are you with me today? All right. Now notice his purpose. 
Okay, here's the third missionary journey. Notice his purpose, verse 23. Notice, strengthening all the disciples. Strengthening God's people. Strengthening others in the Lord. This is what brings us joy, beloved, or it ought to. Strengthening God's people brings them joy. And if we can play part in that, it ought to bring us joy. This was Paul's joy. Look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 25. Convinced of this, he writes, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. To a troubled church, the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24, notice, we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. Not in your own strength. Not, not pull up your bootstraps and get to it. No, in your faith, the substance of your faith. Not faith in faith, but faith in the foundation, Jesus Christ. To stand firm. We, we, we strengthen others, brothers and sisters, with the promises of God. There's such a great example of this in the Old Testament with David and Jonathan. Um, I have it on the screen. You don't have to turn to it. But it's in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Now, before I read it, let me lay out a little context. Um, David has been given a promise from God that he will be Israel's king. Jonathan, his best friend, his beloved brother, um, is the son of the current king, Saul. Now, think about this. Jonathan could have been jealous, angry, and envious about the fact that David would be king and not Jonathan. And he's not. He actually supports David in the fact that he will be king. And that is while his father Saul is trying to kill David. Look at it, verse 15. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, verse 17, do not be afraid. Sound familiar? Do not be afraid. Because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you, and Saul, my father, knows that also. Isn't that great? There were a couple of brothers there, boy, David and Jonathan. So in verses 15 and 16, Jonathan encouraged him in God. He strengthens his hand. He reminds him. He reminds David of God's promises. And verse 17, he says, David, you know it. I know it. And guess what? My daddy, Saul, he knows it also. In the midst of trouble, in the midst of trial, in the midst of this Saul pursuing David for his very life, Jonathan encourages him in the promises of God. You think you've got it tough. It's all relative, though, I suppose, isn't it? Trials, tribulations, it's all relative. God only gives you the grace 
If you're being chased by one Saul for your head, he'll give you the grace to run and hide from one like Saul if someone's pursuing your head, but not until. Amen? Grace for today. And this is what we're to do. To minister the truth of God back to his people. You know, we're, we're interviewing new members now. Um, they've gone through membership class. They'll become members at the end of the month. And we interview them and we encourage them. Um, one way in which they're able to serve is a way that most people overlook. And I remind them that one of the ways in which you minister to other people happens after Sunday service in the fellowship hall. Encourage, you get to know one another, so you get to know what one another's trials and troubles are. And at that point in time, you're able to remind one another of the promises of God for you. That's ministry, man. That's ministry. We strengthen others as Jonathan strengthened David with the promises of the gospel. So here then in verses 24 to 48, according now, notice, to the providence of God, according to the providence of God, Priscilla and Aquila, who were left in Ephesus, verse 19, they're left there when, verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. Okay, what we're shown here is that fervency, a fervent man, fervency is no substitute for accuracy. Here's a Jew, Apollos, from Alexandria, that is Alexandria, Egypt, um, who at that time, Alexandria that is, um, had um, the largest library in the ancient world, holding up to half a million volumes, which was remarkable at that time. A half a million volumes at this period of time. Alexandria is also where 250 years prior to this, 70 scholars translated the Hebrew Old Testament text into Greek, otherwise known as the Septuagint. They're in Alexandria, Egypt. This is where the man is from a well-educated brother, and, you know, it's very interesting. It's very interesting as we read Scripture that we don't often find people in the Bible described, or we don't often find people in the Bible where the Holy Spirit, that is Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture, exalts the preaching abilities of many men at all, other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses himself, what did he say about his tongue? I can't speak. I stammer. And God says what? Go. Go. I'm not gifted with my tongue. But here, Apollos, notice, has quite a resume early on in his ministry. Verse 25, listen to this. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. And here's a man, eloquent and a powerful speaker. 
He's described as fervent, fervent in spirit, literally boiling, boiling in the spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, not the human spirit. Fervent. And probably, as 1 Corinthians alludes to this, probably a better speaker than the Apostle Paul, yet Paul rejoiced in that. But you can well imagine, as I can, that there would be some disagreement, which is often the case among immature believers. Remember when he goes into Corinth, there were some there who said, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Paul, and then some had the goal to say, well, I'm of Jesus. Ever met those people? I don't need someone to teach or preach. It's just me and the Lord. You need to grow up. Notice, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He taught accurately the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. That is John the Baptist, ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to announce his arrival. John the Baptist. The fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Look at it. A voice calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And of course it was John the Baptist's ministry to prepare the, prepare the way of the Lord. Mark chapter 1 and verse 3. Prepare the way of the Lord. That's deity. Context, Jesus. John preaches Mark 1 verse 3. The Lord Jesus. Now, this is what is meant when Luke writes in verse 25, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord. That is, he is a man who knew the truth that John the Baptist proclaimed about the coming one. Now, remember what our Lord himself said about John the Baptist? Of all men born of women, there's none greater than... John the Baptist. Nevertheless, he also goes on to say, everyone in this age is greater than John. And he did not mean by way of experience. He did not mean by way of calling. What he meant that you're greater than John the Baptist is that you have many more privileges having been granted more revelatory truth about Christ, the one who came, died, rose again, and has ascended and has descended by way of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost onward. Woohoo! <laughs> Yet how poorly... How poorly the modern church in our day and in our country, how poorly does the church today take advantage of her privileges having been given so much more revelatory light than John? Considering, considering how John the Baptist took advantage of his much more limited revelatory light. You remember when he was locked up in prison and he sent his disciples Go and ask Jesus, is he the one, or we are, to, are we to look for another? And what did Jesus do? As I said before, he didn't come and put his hand around him and give him a hug and a kiss. He sent back with him the word of God. The word of God. The promises of old. The old covenant promises. The prophetic truth about the coming one. I'm here. He brings back the word. That's what we're to do. You know, John was so deeply committed to the things of the Lord, they had mistaken him for Messiah. And we on this side 
of the new covenant, having been given so much more revelatory light than John, many Christians can't even drag themselves into regular worship Sunday after Sunday. Can I get a hearty amen there? <laughs> think things to think about. So here, notice this Apollos. Two things to see about this man. He's competent in the scripture and fervent in spirit. What a marvelous combination. What great balance. I mean, this guy knows what he believes and his hearers know he believes it. You know, there used to be a time in America that people used to gather and, and they would be attracted to the gospel passion of the preacher. Unsaved people, drawn to the passion of the preacher. Benjamin Franklin would go hear John, uh, George Whitfield preach because he said there, before his eyes, he could watch a man burn. Burn with what? Passion. Fervent spirit. I've listened to men, brilliant, competent in the scriptures, but lifeless and unmoving in the pulpit. Scholarship in the head, no fire in the soul. You got to have both. Now, these men are called and they're competent. They're just cold. On the other hand, I've met very fervent men who run around like madmen. And they say, God told me this and God told me that. He says, no, he didn't. How dare you say God didn't tell me that? The Bible doesn't say that. Therefore, he didn't say it. Test all things in light of scripture. Hold fast to that which is true. These are madcap, wacky zealots running around without a grain of theological wit. You don't want that kind of fervency. You want this combination. Competent in the scriptures and fervent in spirit. So Apollos, this brother, he was called to the ministry. What constitutes a call to the ministry? How do we know? Because he was gifted for the role and he carried it out fervently. A man must be able to teach. And here he is. Sometimes young men become Christian. They come to saving faith and they think, if I'm going to be of any use to God, I had better go into the ministry. I had better become a pastor. I better become a preacher. They go off to seminary. They spend $30,000 or so, and they only come to realize that they're not gifted for the role. They don't have the leadership ability, nor do they have the preaching ability. And out of guilt, sometimes I think that they, they press themselves into thinking that, that they're called because they feel like it. There's much more to a call than, than, than feeling. I felt like I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. I barely know my times tables. <laughs> need to know algebra and calculus and geometry if you're going to be an astronaut. So don't tell your children you can be anything in the world you want to be. No, you cannot. <laughs> if God hasn't gifted you to be an astronaut, mathematically, you're not going to be an astronaut. And, and merely having a warm heart for the ministry doesn't mean you're called to the ministry. God gifts you for the ministry. And here's a man gifted and, and called. So all that to say, we need more than warm hearts. You know, a Bible and a guitar. <laughs> you, 
You must be able to teach and you must be bold. And that's what Apollos was, a bold preacher. Now, there are others who are fervent in spirit and they are sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. I've heard people say, but man, that brother loves Jesus. That's not enough. It's not enough. I'm, I, I don't doubt they love the Lord. It's not enough. You must be competent in the scriptures, fervent in the spirit, declaring the word of God unapolog unapologetically, without fearing man. Because if you fear man, you'll want to accommodate man. Therefore, you'll have to entertain man. So you start reflecting what's in the culture. So when they come out of the culture and into the church, it's no different than the culture. This place should shine with the truth of the gospel. Here he is. Verse 26. He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him inside and explained to him the way of God. More accurately, ordinary people, tent makers, doing ordinary ministry for a very extraordinary savior. Here they are. A godly couple to take interest in this young man who has great promise and they encourage him. A tent making couple, straighten the boy out. Beautiful. You know, Apollos was guilty of false teaching though he was not a false teacher. And there's a difference. There's a difference between error and heresy. Every preacher, especially when they're young, errs along the way. But heresy is something that strikes at the heart of the gospel. It strikes at the heart of truth. So Priscilla and Aquila here, realizing that this Apollos doesn't understand all the deep truths of the gospel as he ought, pulls him aside. And notice what they do not do. They do not stand up and, and make a fuss. They do not stand up and confront him publicly. They take him aside privately. This isn't blatant heresy. He just didn't know what he didn't know. Isn't that beautiful? They take the brother aside. They did not rebuke him publicly. This is a valuable lesson for us in the way we should address someone who is wrong and or ignorant. Ignorant means that what? You just don't know. And they pull him aside. So if you encourage, motivate, or help someone like this, you're doing the work of an Aquila and Priscilla, a God-honoring work. So notice, having been taken aside by this tent-making couple, Apollos is a humble brother. Teachable. Are you teachable? He's teachable. It's tempting when someone is this gifted to not be teachable. Apollos was well aware of his abilities. And he humbly receives their instruction, their correction. His error. And again, that's quite different than being a false teacher. I know false teachers. I've met false teachers. They're uncorrected and uncorrectable. They run around based on their personality. 
and it's sad. We're, we're reminded in 2 Timothy that people who hear them have itching ears, so they accumulate for themselves those kind of teachers because they want nothing to do with sound doctrine. You wonder why their halls are filled? That's why. It's the people. And by the way, Priscilla and Aquila, you'll notice Priscilla's name is often listed first every time their names are mentioned. Not every time, but almost every time. And some believe that, that she was the more knowledgeable one, perhaps, perhaps. But notice one thing, Priscilla does not violate 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? Why does she not violate that? Because this was not the exercise of the gift of teaching in public. This was private instruction. And perhaps she did know more than her husband. I've learned a lot from some pretty wise women who knew more than I did. Amen? Who was it? Was it Spurgeon who said he learned more from this, this housewife he knew with regard to doctrine than he did anyone else? Was it Spurgeon? I don't remember. You have to go look it up later. So now I want you to notice as we wrap up, notice the fruit um, of ordinary people um, doing ordinary ministry for an extraordinary Savior. And, and that is the fruit um, through this encounter with this Apollos, verse 27. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him. And wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Fruit. So he goes on here having a powerful ministry. He defeats opposing Jews here, publicly showing by way of the scriptures that indeed the Christ is Jesus of Nazareth, God's promised Messiah. Powerful preacher. So how was he able to preach the gospel in its fullness now? If he only knew the gospel, if he only knew of Christ's ministry up to John the Baptist, then what did he know of his death, resurrection, and ascension? Nothing. So here now he preaches the gospel. What's the gospel? That through the life, death, and resurrection, God Almighty, who is just, God is just, he takes the righteousness of himself. God takes his righteousness through Jesus to unrighteous people and thereby, through the way of faith, justifies them. You're justified in Christ, declared free from all blame, bringing them into alignment with the very righteousness of God himself. That is, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you are justified by the blood of Christ alone. You don't want to ever get used to hearing that. Justified. Declared free from all blame. That is, you are loved, you are blessed, you are accepted by God through the merits of Jesus Christ alone. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do whatsoever to cause him to love you any less if you're in Christ. There's nothing you can do for him to love you more 
if you're in Christ. That's your justified position in Christ covered by his blood, which declares you as right with God. You have peace with God. That's what the brother preached. That's the message that goes out to this very day. Saving faith is a gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God. Did you earn it? No. You can't merit that. The meritorious achievement is in Christ alone. You receive him by faith. That's the glorious gift. That's what the man preached. And then fruit that you're saved is that you have the resident presence of the Holy Spirit. And his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, redeemed, purchased. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Do you know him? Do you believe? Do you, have you entrusted yourself fully and completely to the meritorious work of Jesus Christ alone? If not, if you think that you have to strive to earn your way, it's a little bit of God and it's a little bit of me, get over that quick. That means repent. Repent means to change your thinking. And if God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in your life, he calls you now to repent and believe. And if you go out of here believing, today is the day of your salvation. So come today if you're not in him, and be assured that you are justified, declared free from all blame. You are covered by the righteous work and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, for application for believers. Here in chapter 18, we see Paul, Silas, Timothy, Crispus, Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos. where God, through his providence, puts them together to use their gifts together for the furtherance of the, of the kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ. God's providence, beloved, reveals for us that it's different kinds of people through whom God works. Yourselves included. So question, how are you using your gifts for the kingdom? The great gift of faith. Does it pray much? If you have the gift of faith, the great gift of faith, you ought to be praying much. Praying, helping, serving, gifts of service, gifts of hospitality, gifts of encouragement. All of us, all we are sinners saved by God's grace saying, I will pray for the kingdom, that I will. I will give to the kingdom, that I will. I will offer whatever gifts I've been given by the Holy Spirit for the kingdom that I will because it's God's kingdom and by way of his providence, his will is being carried out through these, his people. Ordinary people. Ordinary ministry for an extraordinary Savior. Amen? So may we all um, this new year pray. Although not all are called to the ministry per se, Nevertheless, we're all involved in ministry. May we all be absorbed with this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and may we have the desire to strengthen others in the gospel of our Lord. Amen? And we further the kingdom for his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these accounts. Thank you again and again for 
um, the, the ministry of, of ordinary people over and over again that we see um, carrying out um, your will according to providence. Um, may we, Lord, be reminded of these things and may we um, carry on, carry the torch, gospel truth, by the power of your spirit. Bless your people and this your word to their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.